You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. Revelation chapter 7. Please turn with me in your pew Bibles or in your Bible apps there. I'll give you a minute. Revelation is the last book in the Bible. And when you're ready, please stand with me in body or in spirit. Revelation 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you must know. And he said, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst no more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Good evening. My name is Ben Milner, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we're looking at the book of Revelation. And um, you might just think we're looking at the nice parts, and uh, that, that is somewhat true, but um, next week that will change. So um, if you want to see some of the scary parts, come back next week. Um, but a lot, of the, a lot of the book of Revelation uh, are these beautiful uh, pictures of the future. Um, this is a gift uh, that comes from the, uh, the risen Christ to his best friend, John, who leaned upon his, uh, his stomach uh, at, when he was uh, on earth, uh, a person who, um, you know, who loved him dearly, the beloved disciple. And now John is working uh, the mines uh, with a pickaxe in a Roman penal colony on this island of Patmos because he's been exiled for preaching the gospel. And uh, his friend comes and visits him and shows him these things. So it's an inherently comforting book. It's an encouraging book. Uh, it's supposed to give us strength to carry on, to fight the good fight. That's what it's for. Um, it's not meant to scare us. It's uh, meant to give us a picture of our true home, which is why I'm doing it during Advent, because this is a time of waiting for him to come back. Um, just as the Hebrews waited him to come in the, in the first Advent, uh, so now we are waiting for him to come back. And John was waiting for him. John, on this island, um, was waiting for him. It was kind of like a soldier in the trenches uh, of World War I, longing for uh, his home in the English countryside, longing to see uh, a picture uh, of his family, of his, um, of his garden, um, of his house, uh, his living room. And um, that's, what, that's what Jesus is giving him. He's giving him these pictures of his true home uh, that will allow him to endure this suffering. And last week we saw the first picture was the throne, which is essentially a revelation of who God is. Uh, it was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this week, uh, the revelation he gives John is of the church. And uh, this is um, what the, the Lamb has created. This is what uh, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is doing on earth. It is the church uh, that is the way he is bringing uh, actually this world to be the new home. It's not like we're all going to be zapped up into heaven. This is going to be the world where he comes down and makes our home. So this is our final destination, planet Earth. Uh, we're not going to be multi-planetary, as some think. We're going to be very much in this planet, but it's going to be a renewed planet, and it's going to be uh, rid of all suffering and evil. Uh, I think of it as like um, a Sistine Chapel, which is a lot bigger than this room. If you've been to the Sistine Chapel, um, it's actually uh, 90 foot, maybe it's somewhat similar, 90 foot uh, tall, like um, 120 feet long. So it's like going to the Sistine Chapel, but everything is painted uh, by Michelangelo. And this is like on one side, you've got a picture of the church present tense, which some theologians call the church militant. So that's on that side, which is going on right now. And uh, that church is fighting against evil. That's who we are. That's who John was. And Jesus, Jesus is telling John, you're still in the fight. Um, and then on the other side, to comfort uh, John even more, he sees the church triumphant, the church in glory, the church um, in its final resting place. So these are the two sides of this passage. Um, on the left, the first part, you have the church militant. On the right, the second part, you have the church triumphant, the, the army of the Lamb. And um, it's all the same church. It's just different dimensions of it. So we'll start with the first part, which is the church fighting against the empire, whether the Roman Empire or the empire today that we live in. Um, again, Revelation 5 was the lamb who ascends to the throne of God, and he grabs this scroll, 
and it says the lamb is conquered, and the scroll contains the true story, the true meaning of the world, the true uh, history of the world. That's what's in the scroll. It's very long, and it has these seven seals, wax seals that are stamped on the scroll. And he, chapter 6, he peels off every seal to open the scroll, and every time he peels off a seal, uh, these plagues come out uh, upon uh, the world. Kind of like the plague, they're very similar to the plagues of Egypt. This is like creation unraveling, the decreation of things. And um, it is the suffering that must come as the reign of Christ spreads. Because eventually, in, in the next five years, John is writing these churches. He's sending the churches the revelation that Jesus gave him to comfort them the way he was comforted. And in the next five years, these churches are going to go through this uh, terrifying cataclysm, which was that uh, Israel was going to be totally destroyed by the Romans. And a lot of the people in those churches... Israel was their home, and so their home is about to completely be demolished. Uh, Jerusalem will be just completely razed to the ground, nothing left. Uh, the temple will be um, just smoldering. Um, and so that is a crisis to them. Um, and that's what these seals represent, the way that the Romans just come um, one thing after another. There's, uh, there's starvation, there's slaughter. There's even earthquakes, which is reported in historians at the time. There were these giant earthquakes that happened. There's all this death. That's what you see with this, the seals. Uh, the suffering is about to come to these churches and their people. But in the middle of the plagues, in the middle of these terrible things, John says, don't forget who you are. Like, don't forget that the church is this sealed people of God that can stand uh, and will not fall in the middle of those plagues. Look at verse 2. Uh, there's this angel that appears, and uh, he is holding a seal in his hand. And when I say seal, I'm talking about like a signet ring for a king that would put the king's initials on a letter that he's writing to make it officially from the king. So this is the king's signet ring, uh, and he takes that seal and he stamps every member of his army, uh, all the soldiers in the army, whether they're age one or they're 99. They're all sealed. That's what we believe baptism is a depiction of, where the Holy Spirit seals someone, and they are declared part of God's people. So um, in, in Israel, the high priest would have a holy to the Lord, holy to the Lord, tattooed on a golden, uh, a very thin golden circlet around his head. And that's what this is representing. But now it's not the high priest of Israel, it's the entire church. Holy to the Lord is what is inscribed, uh, tattooed on our forehead. And that's our secret weapon to fight, is that, that indelible identity that is etched in gold. And uh, it is like the, the I've, I've used this at baptism also, the, the scar on Harry Potter's forehead when he, was, um, when he was attempted to be murdered by Voldemort. And it's the scar that gives him his true identity, that... And he tries to run from that identity. He doesn't like that identity. And sometimes we don't like being marked by uh, the lamb, the suffering lamb of God. Uh, but that scar means he's the boy who lived, that he is the one who overcame the killing curse. And so that marks him as a special destiny. And we have holy to the Lord. In other words, set apart uh, an alternative to the kingdom, uh, a kingdom alternative to the empire we live in. And if you look in verse 4, this is, this is a very controversial part of Revelation. It probably shouldn't be. I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000. And there are some Christians out there who think that's the total number of people saved. That's clearly contradicted just a few verses later. Um, but 
The reason that it's 144,000 is it's, uh, he goes through the roll call of the 12 tribes of Israel that's based in the book of Numbers from the Old Testament, which is when he took the census of the army. So this is a military, a martial metaphor. And what it's saying is that it's the fullness of all the 12 tribes, because 1,000 is the number of fullness, like the 1,000 years that he will reign. That comes up later in chapter 20. That's not a literal 1,000 years. That's a, the fullness of time in which Jesus reigns from from the ascension to his second coming. That's what the thousand years are. And this thousand is the fullness of Israel. It's all the 12 tribes times a thousand. And so um, it is the church, because the church is the fullness of Israel. It's the roll call of the 12 tribes of Israel. And instead of fighting Canaanites like the Israelites did with sword and spear, uh, we are fighting the principalities and powers of the Canaanites. We're fighting the evil forces that were behind the Canaanites. So we don't battle against flesh and blood. Uh, we don't have swords and spears. We battle against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers of this present darkness and spiritual forces of evil in high places. That's who we are battling. And we're battling that by holiness, by being countercultural. That's what uh, the, the forces of evil hate more than anything, is, is somebody who is holy or a church that is holy. Salem Presbyterian Church, a holy, set-apart people. And one way that I would apply that today is that we live in the culture wars. There's not a lot of, um, there's, no, there's not a civil war going on in America, thank goodness. Although there is a lot more violence, there's a lot more murder, uh, there's a lot more anger and rage, and that's partly because of the culture wars that we live in. And you have these extremes, where apparently about only 5% represent the two extremes, but they are the loudest. And so they make everybody else angry also. And uh, we, as the people of God, stamped by the Lamb, we, will, we do not follow the donkey or the elephant, although they try to co-opt us. They want us to be part of their power base, but that's not who we are. There's a great podcast called Truth Over Tribe, and that's their motto. Uh, not the donkey, not the elephant, but the Lamb. And so we, as the set-apart people of God, we disrupt these simplistic narratives that the two, tri the two tribes try to sell us by speaking the truth in love. We speak the truth in love. And one of my favorite expressions of this is the, um, this thing called the AND campaign, which is a, a website, among other things. It's a t-shirt, it's a movement, and it's got a, um, parentheses and a, the symbol for AND in the middle of it. So it's a really cool t-shirt. I really want one of those. But the AND campaign um, has this, you know, we're not going to think like a Democrat. We're not going to think like a Republican. Uh, it's a podcast called Church Politics Podcast. And they said we're going to think like a Christian, where you, you have both a commitment to life and traditional sexual ethics and redemptive justice, fighting for the poor, for the environment. And it's all from an urban perspective. So everyone on the board is African American, and it's coming from an urban perspective. And the AND campaign is a great example of this thing that both sides hate. Like, they're not funded very well. They have to, they have, to have individual donations because both sides don't like them because they, they, they kind of counter the narrative of both sides, which is very simplistic. I went to um, this presentation of the Pregnancy Network, which is another example of this, this week. And their mission is, quote, to empower women to face unplanned pregnancies without fear. And they're intentionally not political, they're not partisan. So a Democrat or a Republican can get on board with this. Because what they're simply doing is providing material and emotional 
and medical support for anyone who comes. You know, whether they choose to have the child or not, they're going to support them. Even after that, even if they choose not to have life, they're going to support the woman through that, and they're going to give her free counseling. So these are great examples of how we fight by being different, by being alternative. And John's churches um, that he was writing to in Asia and Western Turkey, they were fighting against the Roman Empire, and especially the decadence of the Roman Empire, which this time of year um, is very pertinent. Because uh, in John's day, it was the spas, and it, the Roman spa was not like a spa in America at all. Uh, there were orgies going on in the Roman spas. The, the sumptuous 10-hour banquets that were always enticing to the churches. The gladiator games, um, like the Hunger Games. The whole thing is a little bit like the Capitol. If you've seen the Hunger Games, the Capitol in the Hunger Games portrays very well uh, the, the allure of Rome, the indulgence of Rome. And we fight a culture right now that is commodifying the incarnation. I mean, how do you take the incarnation of God you strip it of all its theology, and you make it something to sell things with, where you get, it becomes, you know, the civil religion of capitalism, where Black Friday is essentially you get, the company gets out of the red and into the black. That's the whole point. Or Cyber Monday, or they're going to add a Tuesday, I'm sure. I think there is a Tuesday. I think it's Giving Tuesday, so that's good. But they're probably going to add a Wednesday to that. Um, this is the, Christ, the Christmas industrial complex, as someone once called it, um, that we take the the birth of Christ, and we make him essentially into Santa Claus or Rudolph, or just to sell things. That's the empire we live in, and we fight that. We fight that by making Advent uh, the center of it instead of just the presents. The presents are great. I love presents, but that's not what it's about. That's not what it's about. And the energy to fight that we have on the left panel comes from looking at the right panel, um, because that is our home. And we have, to, we have to look upon his final victory because at times he gets so depressing. And I'm sure John, you know, in the island of Patmos, um, pretty much alone, um, working with the chain gang, you know, and, and probably very few Christians, if any, on that chain gang. And, and he has got to be looking at that to keep fighting. He probably doesn't even believe he's in the Lamb's army anymore. He's probably thinking, I'm useless. But that's why Jesus gives him the picture of the new creation. So that's the... That's the other aspect of the church, the church militant, the church triumphant. And this is why, verse 9, that it's not 144,000. Um, because it says in verse 9 that the total number of people in that church triumphant is unable to be counted, which by definition is not 144,000 because that can be counted because that's a number. So this cannot be counted because it's too big to be counted because it is the... It is the fulfillment of the promise God made to Abraham. If you think about it, it's very moving. This one man, it was about 100, the wife that is about 100, who was barren, uh, their whole lives could not get pregnant. And God says, from you, I'm going to make a nation or a people or a kingdom that will have uh, so many people, it will be like the stars of the sky. He even says, look, and, look at the stars of the sky if you can count them. You can't count them. Or look at the sand of the seashore. This is in Genesis 22:17. I will multiply your descendants like the stars of the sky. And here we are in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Abraham, you know, thousands of years ago um, in Israel. If he could have seen this, this is the fulfillment. You know, there are two billion Christians today. It's going to be way more than that going forward. Because it is a multitude that nobody could number. 
So if you imagine, you know, that God is just going to save this tiny group of people, um, that is not biblical. Now, somebody will say, well, doesn't Jesus say the gate is narrow? And he does. That's in Luke 13, 24. He says, the gate is narrow, and there are few who find it. But he's talking to Pharisees and Israelites, and few of them did find it. That was true. Many rejected their Messiah. But then, five verses later, he says this, Many will come from the east and the west and the north and the south, and they will recline at the banquet table of the king. So that's where he says it's not just about Israel, it's about the nations, it's about the Gentiles. That's where there's going to be this multitude that nobody could number. And in Revelation 21, 24, at the very end of time, it says all the kings of the world, all the rulers, it could be just ruler, could be a governor, a mayor, could be a chieftain, um, all of the kings of the world bring in their unique glory into the new creation. So not only is it a um, multitude that cannot be numbered, it is from every tribe and language and people and nation. And so uh, the, the final church is going to be a lot more diverse than any church you've ever been in, probably. Um, well, definitely, because there's going to be people from all over the world, every single tribe, and not just like countries, but we're talking about clans. Uh, every clan will be represented, like the Milner clan. That, that's what... Uh, a tribe would be. So all of the different diversity of the different tongues and tribes and customs are all going to be represented in their uniqueness in the new kingdom. They're not going to become um, all the same. You know, I used to think that when I was an atheist that, that missionaries were these terrible people that would go out and they would take all these beautiful indigenous cultures and they would try to civilize them and make a worldwide monoculture. I don't know if you've thought about that about missionaries, but that's one reason missionaries changed their name from missionary to um, cross-cultural worker, which is a better name. But I still thought that about missionaries. But the reality is that the more a culture embraces Jesus, the more itself, its true self, that culture becomes, the more unique it becomes. So a Brazilian who becomes a Christian becomes more Brazilian, um, or a German who becomes a Christian becomes more German, or a Southerner who becomes a Christian becomes more of a Southerner. But whatever the customs, whatever the culture, when it gets liberated from the principalities and powers, Jesus is not spreading conformity. He's not spreading conformity. He's spreading liberation, deliverance from the principalities and powers. There's a great uh, Christian artist from the 70s, one of the very first, maybe the very first Christian uh, rock artist, Steve Taylor. Not very well known anymore, but you should look him up. And uh, he, was, he, was, he wrote a song, he, would, he wrote really biting songs. Uh, that's why he probably wouldn't be, um, you know, put out there by Nashville today. But uh, he would write these very mocking, biting, ironic songs. And one was called I Want to Be a Clone, where he talked about how uh, all the Christians he saw in churches just wanted to be clones of one another. And um, I thought that Jesus was going to make me into a clone. I thought that if I put my faith in him, he was going to make me exactly the same as every other Christian, and he would, uh, I, he, I would become a conformist. That's one thing that kept me from the faith. But what I realized is I had become a conformist by being locked up in my false self, and my true self is what is liberated by Christ into being more different than anyone else. I mean, we're all, we become more and more different, we become more and more unique. Um, as C.S. Lewis said, how monotonously alike are all the great tyrants, and how gloriously different are all the saints. 
So if Jesus doesn't make us more and more alike, he makes us more and more unique. And if you want to find your true inner self, you know, true authenticity, that's a, that's a big part of the search uh, for younger people these days, which is a good thing, to search for authenticity. I would say the way to do that is you, is you worship God, uh, like these people are doing. You cry out to God with a loud voice, verse 10. You fall on your face and worship. You look outside of yourself, and that will make you your true self. If you focus on the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because worship liberates us into the, into the hands of a God who, who handcrafted us, who knit us together in our mother's wombs. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. And he holds us in the palm of his hand. And so if we turn to him and worship him, of course we're going to become the true self, the true me. Not the one um, that puts up all the walls and, and posts all these things that are not true about myself. Um, you become the true you. Because um, he who sits on the throne, uh, verse 15, in the new creation will shelter us with his presence, which is a very intimate image. It's like a mother uh, looking at her little baby, uh, stroking you know, the baby's wispy hair and, and looking into his eyes. That's sheltering. The God of presence of God is sheltering his saints. And they've come out of the tribulation. They washed their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. So these are people who have suffered, like John, and now they come into the new creation and the Father is holding them, sheltering them with his presence. Uh, Psalm 139, you search my path and my lying down, you're acquainted with all of my ways. He knows us intimately. And the sheltering that he does is, is unique to the pain that John is experiencing. So he could have he written a lot of things about how he shelters his people, but if you notice in verse 16, hunger and thirst no more. I mean, what would, you, what would it be like to be working the mines of Patmos, this tiny little rocky, craggy island in the Mediterranean? You would be hungry a lot. You'd be thirsty a lot. The Romans did not feed their prisoners well. Um, and then it says in verse 17, uh, he will guide them to springs of living water. That, if you were on a rocky, barren island, that would be an enticing image, to be led to springs of living water. And then... Verse 16, the sun will not strike you, nor any scorching heat. I mean, the, the Mediterranean sun would have been beating down on their burned backs all day long. And I can imagine, you know, John uh, singing that line to fellow prisoners who are starving and parched as they're trying to sleep. He could, I can imagine him, these things he's been given, this vision of the new creation from the risen Christ, I can imagine him singing these things. The sun will not strike you, nor any scorching heat. You know, hold on, there's something coming that's better than you can imagine. And not only does the one on the throne, so that's been more the Father, the one sitting on the throne, he is sheltering us with his presence, but then the second person of the Trinity, the Son, and the, and the book of Revelation is so thoroughly Trinitarian, you can barely even parse out who's who. It's just everywhere in the book of Revelation, but as the Father is sheltering, or sheltering us with his mighty right hand, the Son is coming down. And he is communing with us in our suffering. And it says in verse 17, and think about the reversal of this, verse 17. The lamb in the middle of the throne will be our shepherd. So how often do you see a lamb that is shepherding someone? You, you never do. A human is always shepherding a lamb. But this lamb is shepherding humans. And he's a slain lamb. So he's slaughtered, he's suffering, 
Uh, he knows what it's like to be cut down and mocked and rejected. And the, the, the real pastor behind any pastor you've ever had, uh, any pastor of this church, the true pastor of every believer is the, is the slaughtered lamb of God. He comes and he shepherds us. And when shepherds are with their sheep, they know them by name. They know exactly how to call them. They know exactly uh, the tone of voice that sheep likes. Each individual sheep, and they sleep with the sheep in the fields, and they're freezing with the sheep in the cold, and they bake with the sheep in the heat. Uh, the sleep, they, they, they wipe away every tear from their eyes, verse 17. And that's probably the most intimate image of all in this picture of the new creation. Um, I mean, I don't know how any human could have come up with that idea. They didn't. God did. But if you were trying to invent a religion, I mean, how could you imagine this incredibly transcendent, mysterious one on the throne with his thumb, you know, wiping the tears gently, brushing tears from right underneath your eye? I mean, I think only two people have ever wiped away a tear from my eye, and that would be my mom and my wife. And I don't think any other will, probably. Um, but it's a very intimate act to wipe away someone's tear. And this is God Almighty who's wiping away our tears. And it's repeated later on in Revelation because it's something that Jesus really wanted John to know. And uh, that, you know, to imagine your crusty red eyes after a really long cry where you're just completely wiped out, and maybe that's happened to you recently, but to imagine your shepherd, not just in the future, but now, you know, wiping away those tears from your eyes. I mean, that's what Jesus is telling John in his suffering. And that gives, that gives me hope to fight, uh, to, to look for the new creation, um, to continue to fight for the new creation. In the, in the, in the wonderful musical Les Mis, uh, there's this song, Do You Hear the People Sing? And it's the end of the first act, where it's about military. They're fighting literally on a barricade. Uh, they're fighting this revolution against the French government. So that's how the first act ends. They sing, do you hear the people sing? And it's all military. At the very end of the movie, at the very end of the play or the musical, whichever one you like, they sing it again. But they change the words. And this is how it goes in the second one. Do you hear the people sing? Do you hear the distant drums? Beyond the barricade, the world that you long to see. We will walk behind the plowshare. We will put away the sword. We will see the face of God in the garden of the Lord. That's how it ends. As Javert, uh, as Valjean goes into his everlasting rest. And um, I have a friend right now who is uh, so afflicted by uh, death around him um, that uh, he says he just can't stop crying. And, and not only um, would I love for him to read this passage and to know that there's that future um, where there will be no more tears, where he will wipe away every tear from their eye. I also would like for him to know that, that he has a Savior that was, uh, as, as we heard in that poem, Kenosis, that beautiful poem, we have a Savior that was born in a feeding trough who himself cried. I mean, imagine Jesus as this red-faced infant thrashing around and screaming at the top of his lungs. In a, he would have been in a stone feeding trough. That's how he was born. So we have a, we have a Savior that my friend uh, that would be walking right next to him, would be weeping with him, sitting with him, and weeping with him now. And uh, that's what we get at this table. That's what this table is about. Um, God came down, and uh, he entered the deepest kind of uh, brokenness with us. That's why, you know, the broken body and the blood shed, you can't really get a more 
uh, visceral graphic image of human physical suffering to break a body, to have bloodshed. And the reason we say that every week is because um, that's how close he is to us in our suffering. Um, he's, he's the God uh, who is with us in the most intimate way in our suffering. And that's what this uh, broken body and shed blood show us, that even on the night we, that we betrayed him, um, No, he's doing it intentionally for them. It's not just haphazard or random suffering, senseless violence. He said, no, this is my body broken for you. I'm doing this to show you how completely and utterly I have identified with you and come all the way down into your suffering. And this is my blood shed for you. So whenever we eat the bread and drink from the cup, we're once again uh, proclaiming the, uh, the reality, uh, the current reign and rule of uh, the crucified God, the Lamb of God, um, that's what this meal declares. It's a proclamation of the good news uh, that Christ has come and he's died and he's risen and he's ascended and he's coming back. And uh, I'm going to pray for us as we um, approach the table. Lord, I pray you would, um, you would help everyone here to, to know whether or not... Um, to take this meal, and um, I pray if people came in here who weren't really sure if they believe or not, uh, that you would uh, make it clear to them, uh, whisper their name like a shepherd does, and uh, have them come up here if that's, um, if that's what you want. And Lord, I pray if anybody does not come and receive this, that they would know they're loved and welcomed here, and that um, you're patient with everyone, you give everyone time, you're not pushy or manipulative, um, that um, you are, again, you're a lamb, you're gentle. Uh, that's, just, that's what a lamb is, gentle, kind creature. Um, and we pray that, uh, I pray, God, that uh, you would let us all know what you're calling us to right now. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. So as I said, uh, if you feel um, like this is, you're not ready for this, don't feel any pressure to come. But, but if you do come, just know you're coming as a beggar uh, searching for bread, you're not coming up here because you're better than anybody or superior in any way. You're coming up here because you need uh, the grace of God. So come up here with your hands out like this. And we'll put the bread in your hands. We'll tear off the Remember, we love these rascals.